Let me pray for you. Lord God, in this space, we acknowledge your spirit moving amongst us because you say where two or three are gathered, you are here also. And so, Lord, I pray that you would empower Peter to teach, to be able to be emboldened, to speak freely whatever it is that you feel uh, that you've got for him this morning. Lord, you are free in this place. And Lord, we acknowledge uh, Peter as elder and we... uh, We thank you for the years of humble service that he has offered you. And Lord, we ask that you would reveal and open our hearts what you have for us this morning as he speaks. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I really uh, enjoy this passage. I always, I've always really loved it. And um, I think it's uh, very appropriate for us as we come today because Paul talks about divisions. And whilst the divisions for the Corinthians are not the same sorts of divisions as for us, nevertheless, um, divisions exist. And it's really interesting that Paul talks about divisions, but he doesn't talk about who's right, this side or that side. He's not even interested in who's right. What he's interested in is the division. And the division is the sin. That's what you need to understand. The division is the sin. That's the whole thing. Because is Christ divided? No. Therefore, to be a part at all is our sin. It's the Corinthian sin. We can't be a part because Christ is not divided. There's one faith, there's one Lord, there's one baptism. We're united in Christ. We preserve the unity of the faith. The problem is It's not what this person says or what that person says or what this person believes or what that person believes. The problem is the division itself. I just want you to think about that as we move forward because there's only one thing that unifies us as a church or any church and that's Jesus. We don't all have the same political beliefs. We haven't all had the same life experiences. We have all kinds of different positions on a whole range of issues. But God calls us apart from those things. Quite apart. In Corinthian society at the time, 
Corinth was a place of about uh, 700,000 people, two-thirds of whom were slaves. And this is pretty typical for the Mediterranean world at the time. So you've got most of the people are slaves. And therefore, most of the people in the churches were slaves. But there were wealthy people. There were people of some status. There are slaves who were freed and there are slaves that weren't freed and they're real bums <laughs> just dying on the street. But they were all part of the church of God. And God doesn't call us because of our position on vaccine or freedom or politics or what cricket team we follow. God calls us because he wants to. Now, this is a tough idea for modern Western people to, to grapple with. That God just does what he wants to do. And he doesn't ask for your opinion or your agreement. He just does it. Jacob, I have loved. Esau, I have hated. They hadn't even done anything. God just says, this way it is. Very important idea because all our freedom in Christ comes from submission to Christ. It doesn't come from some other source. The freedom we have in Jesus comes as we submit ourselves to Jesus. And Jesus is quite apart from the world. This world and all our different opinions and all our different social statuses and all those sorts of things, divisions of race, class and gender. God doesn't call us on the basis of any of that. God calls us because he wants to. Now, I know I'm treading into uh, areas of Calvinism here and <laughs> certainly is represented in this passage that God just calls who he wants to call. And Calvinism is, you know, on the one hand, right, and on the other hand, completely useless in terms of evangelism. Because we don't know. We don't know who God's called. We can just do the calling. Or we can be used by God to preach the word. But we don't know what's going to work. We don't even know what's going to work in our own families. Now, in Abraham, all the nations of the earth are blessed. But within our families, some will become Christians and some won't. And however much you and I might want that or might grieve for it not happening, we can't control that because God does the calling. He not only does the calling... He provides the 
means of salvation through Jesus. He not only provides the means of salvation through Jesus, he also enlivens us with our spirits to respond to him. All those things. And it's all to do with God. That's why at the end of this passage, Paul says, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Because I tell you what, you've got nothing else to boast about. None are righteous. None. Not one. In fact, if you want to read the preamble to that statement in Romans 3, some pretty ugly stuff comes up about human beings. And, uh, but the one that always gets me actually goes right back to Genesis, where it says this. God looked, Lord, the Lord looked upon the people of the earth and he said that even the intentions of the thoughts of your heart are only evil and evil continually. That should make us rejoice in the grace of God. And in that uh, reading that we had earlier from Proverbs, another winner of a reading, because this is about wisdom is the kind of title. This is wisdom. But this is, we understand it to be Jesus. And he says this. Um, when God's creating the earth and Jesus is with him and they're doing all this stuff with stars and oceans and animals and everything, says this, I was beside him as a master workman and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. Literally, that word rejoicing is playing. Jesus was just mucking around with his dad creating the world. But this is what it says. This is the most amazing thing in it. Rejoicing in the world, his earth, and having my delight in the sons of men. Isn't that incredible? When you think of our moral and spiritual stature before God, yet the Lord has his delight in the sons of men. That's why he died for us, I guess. But it's an incredible thing. Right, to get back to the sermon, um, I don't even know where I am in the sermon, I've just started talking. But um, Right, division. Okay, I've talked to you about division and all of that. I want to say something about preaching. And I want to, because I've got some interesting ideas about preaching here, and they're not the sort of ideas that most call committees um, probably, I don't know if they think about it or not. But it talks about this. It says that um, for the word of the cross to those who are perishing is foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Now, Paul's saying this as a pretty educated guy. I mean, he grew up as a Roman citizen. 
he would have understood Roman theology, Roman um, social contracts, the way their society worked. He would have understood Greek thought because the Romans imported a lot of Greek thought. Then he goes and sits at the feet of Gamaliel, a famed Jewish rabbi, and he's really the number one guy in Jewish society. So Paul's not some stupid guy saying, oh, you know, this book learning, that's just nonsense. He's saying, compared to God, you know what? It's just nonsense. This is what I know. So it's an incredible thing. But when he talks about preaching, he talks about Christ crucified. He says, um, for since the wisdom in the wisdom of God, the world through, his, uh, through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews, uh, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles a foolishness. Now, I don't know if you've ever felt this when you've been uh, talking to people about Jesus, but sometimes you feel like a bit of a fool. You don't feel like you've got much sophistication, much, I don't know, rational argument. Because in the end, you haven't. You just haven't. You haven't got anything in. All you got is the fact that Jesus died. That's what you got. And that's what Paul preaches. So here's one of the smartest guys of his age. But when he comes to the Corinthians, and I'm referring now to chapter 2 of Corinthians, he says this, For I determined... Now, remember, he's come into a culture, Greek culture, in Corinth, that is really highly committed to ideas of philosophy and theology and, and all that sort of stuff. So he's going to an educated audience. But what he says is, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you with weakness and in fear and with much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Because Paul knew that when he spoke his message, no matter how convincingly or impressively he, he preached it, that didn't save people. The people who got saved were the people that God wanted to be saved. The people who got saved were the ones who found in themselves, mysteriously, that the Spirit of God says, this guy's on the money, this is right. And we've all had that feeling. That's what becoming a Christian is, isn't it? It's not just a matter of believing in some theology. It's a matter of the Spirit of God convicting you of something. And after a while, in fact, not after a while, just in a second, you just know. You just know. And if you don't know, you didn't get it. 
That's how it is. That's why Christianity is not a religion. Because the religion is man's attempt to understand God and come up with some ideas about how we should relate to God and all that. But the whole gospel, from beginning to end, is about revelation. It's something that comes from outside of us to us. It's not our ideas about God. It's God telling us who he is. That's why he sends Jesus, so we know who he is. But we haven't got any ideas about, of ourselves that are reliable about who he is. It's a revelation. And if it's a revelation, and it's not to do with human thinking, then in that sense, it's not really a religion. It's a revelation. A revelation that some people believe. Those who are called to receive it, receive it. So Paul can't control who's going to receive it. And we can't control who's going to receive it. We can't even control it in our own families. In fact, this is one of the ugly things about about modern Christianity that it's all about mum and dad and apple pie and families and stuff. Try and find one happy family in the Bible. Go on, just one. Can you come up with it? One. Just give me one. Jesus himself, when he was ministering to the people and healing people and chucking out demons and doing all this stuff, his own family comes along to the place where he's ministering because they think he's nuts, right? His own family think the Son of God's nuts. And he looks at them when he gets told that, hey, Jesus, your mum and your, your brothers are outside. He says, he looks at the people that he's ministering to and he says, behold, my mother and brothers. So Jesus denies his earthly family in favour of a family that God reveals and God creates. It's a hard thing to swallow for me, for you, for anyone when you want your kids to be saved. That's the most important thing in your whole life and you can't guarantee it. And thus it is in our church. There's things that we just can't control. Only God can control these things. But for those of us who do believe, we must be unified in our faith. Not in our political opinions, not in our view of vaccines, not in anything like that, but in this gospel, in Jesus Christ dying for us. That's what we've got to be focused on. And that's the only thing, the only thing to be focused on. So, we want to appoint a new pastor. Do we pick the eloquent one? Where's the evidence for that? Do we pick the smart guy? Where's the evidence for that? The only preacher who's any good is the one that the Spirit of God 
uses to convert people. Even the preacher can't control that. Something for call committees in the future to think about. Might have a real dummy and a whole lot of people come to the Lord. <laughs> Could happen. I mean, I'm just saying. But it goes counterintuitive to our way of thinking, doesn't it? It really does. Okay. Um, uh, Calvinism and faith, I've sort of talked to you about that. But I will say something else about Calvinism, faith, and calling an election. Um, the interesting thing about calling is that there's a doctrine that we need to believe, what I've talked about, Christ crucified. And that doctrine is brought to people by the preaching or public proclamation of the doctrine of the great news of salvation. So you do need a preacher that can preach. But the reception of the gospel is dependent on the spirit, on the God who calls. But the point is that it's way above your and my pay grade how this all happens and for whom it does happen to. We can pray for it, we can work towards it, we can preach, and it's not even our responsibility whether people respond or not. Because we can't control it, so how can it be our responsibility? we just got to do preach. That's what we've got to do. But we can't control who's going to respond. Okay. Um... Towards the end of the passage, it says some things about Jesus. It talks about Jesus and it sort of describes him um, in four different ways. And it goes like this. Um, by his doing, you're in Christ Jesus. By his doing, right? Um, you're in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Those four things. The wisdom I've already talked about, that comes up in Proverbs. Because wisdom is doing smart things in God's terms. That's what wisdom is. It's agreeing with God about something and doing something, and it works. And when God created the world... It worked. He created a world. And if God decides that the people who are going to respond to him are going to be the people that he says are going to respond to him, well, that's how it is. But it works. So when we are called, and when we refer to the called or the church or whatever, it always means... Charles Hodge, 1857, this is from. Um, it always means effective calling. So when a person is called by God, it works. Because the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. It always works. Wisdom of God. 
Jesus is also called our righteousness. Now, the righteousness is actually, in theological terms at least, imputed righteousness. I don't have a righteousness. Jesus has a righteousness. He gives me his righteousness. And he does it by taking me into him and then I become righteous. But I don't have a righteousness apart from him. I've only got a righteousness in him. And so do you. This is good. It's always good to have God's righteousness covering you. So we've got wisdom, we've got righteousness, we've got sanctification. Our previous pastor, Craig, actually was trying to talk to us about sanctification. He was under the silly impression that we already knew the gospel. And so he thought that we should be moving on to sanctification and being holy. People just didn't get it. That's okay. But sanctification is the process of being made holy. It's a process of being trained in righteousness. And it's a lot of hard work. And we make a lot of mistakes. And God busts us. And that busting us, and when we repent, is the training. You know, you look at these guys in the Australian Open. They're slugging it out for hour on hour on the tennis court. And let me tell you, next week when it warms up a little bit in Melbourne, because we know it is going to warm up, they're going to be slugging it out a lot more. But the point is, they need to be trained in what they do. And it hurts. People often think, oh, isn't fitness fun? No, it's not. I've been a swimming coach. Fitness isn't fun. Fitness is like pain. Graduated pain. More of it you can take, the better you get. Guy like Nadal. In fact, I'll tell you a story about Nadal. Andy Murray, when he was a young bloke, he was about 15, was in the Scottish national tennis team. And he used to have two coaching sessions per week provided to him by the British Tennis Association, or whoever they were, for an hour and a half. Got to you know, play with the coach for an hour and a half. In his Christmas holidays, or in his whatever, yeah, it would have been like a Christmas holidays, I guess, um, he got sent off to Spain because they, Spanish are pretty good tennis players. He gets to Spain, he finds Nadal under Carlos Moya. They're playing six days a week, six hours a day, against pros. And Andy Murray said to his mum, I've got to go to Spain. We're just not cutting it. But that's what he had to do. So he's got this artificial hip now. He's a complete wreck, as is Federer, as is Nadal. Because fitness is pain. Thus it is with God's fitness, with God's training, with God's sanctification. It is painful. Hurts a lot. But Jesus is our sanctification. He's the one who's our coach, who's our guide, who's our mentor, who's our physiotherapist. He's the one that's right beside us, going through the pain. And we can't ever say to our coach, Hey Jesus, I've had enough pain. 
Because he's going to say, no, you haven't. Try dying on the cross for once, huh? Yeah. Sanctification involves a bit of pain because it just doesn't come natural for human beings to be like God. It just doesn't. And finally, Jesus is our redemption. Jesus has signed and sealed and paid for our sins. It's a done deal. He is our redemption. Not you, not me, not the Christian. Jesus is our redemption. He's our wisdom, he's our righteousness, he's our sanctification, he's our redemption. Therefore, since our hearing of the gospel and because of the saving work of Jesus and our calling by God and our reception of it and the eternal blessings which flow from it, because those, all these things come from God, there can be no credit that we can ever claim for believing. Instead, he who boasts, boasts in the Lord. That's your boast. I'm going to finish up with a song. If I can still breathe. <laughs> See, these masks, they get pretty claustrophobic after a while, don't they? But then again, it's probably a bit tougher for the people over east who've done a lot more of this than what we've had to do. Sorry? Oh, yeah. If you don't pass out, you're looking good. Yeah. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can
got no other boast but the blood of Jesus given for us. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. So good to hear that.